It's good to be here this afternoon and to see some faces returning from the summer. If I haven't met you, I'm uh, Andrew Ziegler. Actually, even if I've met you, I'm Andrew Ziegler. That's not conditional. Um, earlier in the summer, if you were here maybe a couple months ago, uh, Bradley suggested that it would be good for us, as we're going through this letter of 1 John, if we tried to read through it daily. Um, it's not a long letter, so that's not actually a hugely difficult thing. It's maybe five, seven minutes long to read. And, and I can't say that I did it every day, but I've read it many, many times now. And I think one of the ordinary kind of conclusions I've come to is 1 John is not summer reading. I mean, we expect our summer reading to be fairly lightweight, to be diverting, hopefully to be kind of funny. John's none of those things. It's dense. It's serious. And if you found a joke in there, I missed it. And I think that's because John sees that the stakes are so high. John is writing to a faithful church, but it's a faithful church in a perilous situation. For a little background, this church has heard the gospel and they've believed it. They believe in Jesus. They're trusting him. But they've also been rocked by betrayal, by apostasy, by, by some contingent from that group, and we don't know how many, who seemed like they were part of them, seemed like they were faithful, and then just threw it all away. And they didn't just kind of quietly go away. They're now enemies of the faith. They're false teachers. And though they had seemed to love the community before, now they're responding in hatred. And I think when something like that happens, you ask a few questions. I mean, you ask, what did they leave for? What am I missing? You ask, who do I trust now? Who's kind of the respectable authority? The apostles or these other people who I once called friend, once called brother? And you might ask, if they fell away, might I also? I think those are the kinds of concerns that frame the entire letter, and also this passage. I wonder if you have any of those same kind of concerns. I mean, we're a young congregation. We're, what, eight, nine years old? We're, we're not too far in. Um, and I don't think anything nearly this traumatic has occurred to us. But we've probably, most of us, known friends and family members who we thought were faithful, who we thought believed, and then just dropped off. Maybe nothing so extreme as this, but some variant. And over the past few weeks, there have been some very public announcements of former Christian leaders who have said very publicly, this is just not me anymore. Whatever it means to be a Christian, that's not me. I don't believe. Maybe you've heard of some of them. Now, it's important that we don't get too grim about this, and that is kind of a grim picture there. Um, the Church of Christ is not the Church of Christ in Massachusetts or the Northeast or, or, or the states. It's much larger than that, and there's so much good happening. We hear about the expansion of the church in the global south and in China, even amidst persecution. So there's lots of good news. The church isn't teetering on collapse or anything like that. But it is the case that in the West, and in the States in particular, we have been in a significant period of decline for about 20 years. In 1999, 
the average, the church membership in the uh, U.S. was roughly 70%, and it's now roughly 50%. Of course, those stats would be very different in Massachusetts. So there's been a significant decline. And so I suspect that these questions seem live for us also. John's basic answer to the first century church, I think, is his basic answer to us. And it comes basically in two parts. First, a promise or a reminder. Know what you have in Christ. In Christ, you have eternal life. Remember that. And the second is an exhortation. Guard yourselves. And he ends very abruptly at the end of this. Guard yourselves from idols. We'll have to figure out what he means by that. But that's the main part that we're going to talk through today, that promise, eternal life, that exhortation. Guard yourself. And we're mostly going to do that in the reverse order. We're going to start with the exhortation and finish with the promise. So I'm going to do that by walking through the passage First, pretty quickly, uh, so you might want to keep the, your uh, scriptures open. Um, and then I'm going to focus first on the exhortation, then we're going to slow down a fair amount to focus on that promise of eternal life and ask, what does it mean when we have eternal life? So let's get into the text and hear God's word to us today. He starts in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, that's him giving his purpose for writing, so that you know you have eternal life. But again, I think they would have been thinking, we have this eternal life, but we've seen what's happened. How do we have confidence that that will be the final story? How can we have confidence we'll keep it? And as we go forward, I think that's what verses 14 to 16 are dealing with. And first, John says, you can have confidence because God's your father. In effect, this is what he's saying. And he loves to hear your prayers. God hears you, and he loves to grant what you ask when you ask in his will. Ask God to keep you in the truth. Ask God to help your unbelief. Ask God to guard you from temptation. Those are the kinds of prayers that God loves to answer. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just that we pray for ourselves. In verse 16, John says that God has given us each other to pray for. He points to each other. He says, if a brother sees another brother, if a brother or sister sees another brother or sister sinning, a sin not leading to death, they ought to pray, and God will give life. Remember, we're talking about eternal life, and so sin is this threat. And John says, you have each other. Pray and God will give life. And I think he means God will restore that wandering brother or sister. I think that's really important and it implies a certain gravity and seriousness to our gathering together. It's wrong to neglect the gathering for a bunch of reasons. We owe God our praise. It's also really dangerous. We need to be somewhere where we can be close enough to each other that people will see when we start to go astray and they'll pray. We also, of course, need to pray for each other. The first thing we ought to do when we think we see sin shouldn't be to look the other way, say that's between them and God, nor to gossip, nor in the first instance necessarily to even confront them. Though that probably comes downstream. It's first to go to God about that in prayer. 
That's a calling to us to be with those who will watch out for you and will pray for you. But what about that ominous-sounding sin that leads to death? We heard that in verse 16. That seems like a threat to confidence also, doesn't it? How can we have confidence that we'll hold on to eternal life when there's a sin out there that leads to death? Now, this is a tricky part. There are a whole bunch of theories about what this means, and we're not going to kind of catalog them. Briefly, I think what this means is what John meant in chapter 3. There he talks about those who have denied Jesus and now hate the brothers and sisters. Now, hear how he talks about them. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So if I'm right then, the sin that leads to death is not just wandering for a time. It's not going off to college and having some doubts. That's a serious situation, but that's not what he's talking about. It's not falling into some kind of serious sin like David. Also, that's serious, but I don't think that's what he's saying. It's this kind of aggressive apostasy. It's where you take advantage of the benefits of the community of, of Christ and then turn, reject it, become kind of an anti-evangelist, and hate the brothers and sisters. That's so serious that John just bluntly says he doesn't advocate praying for them at that point. Or at least he says, that's not what I'm talking about. You're going to be too busy praying for your brothers and sisters and that's a serious case. But still, if that's happened and that had happened to them, if some at least have gone from friends to enemies to beloved to hating, you still have that nagging question. Could that happen to me? If so, that's a threat to this enjoyment of eternal life. I think that's what John is dealing with as he continues. And he says, no one born of God sins, or keeps sinning, as your translation says. I think he's talking about the same thing. I think he's talking specifically about that sin that leads to death. When John says, no one born of God sins, he doesn't mean we can never lose our temper or we can never be a little bit selfish or anything like that. I, I don't think that's what he's saying. He's not a perfectionist in that sense. But John is saying that if we're born of God we simply can't sin, that sin leading to death, like the false teachers who've rejected Christ and now hate the brethren. But he continues. He doesn't just say that as a guarantee. Why? He continues, the one born of God doesn't sin, the sin leading to death, I think, because the one born of God guards himself, and the evil one can't touch him. That's effectively what he says. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I want to focus on that first bit that I just read. The one born of God guards himself, and the evil one can't touch him. That's a little bit different from what your translation's there, the ESV says. I think the ESV is just fantastic. Um, I think this is probably a more reliable translation here based on some recent scholarship. The focus is the one born of God isn't going to send that sin because the one born of God is going to guard themselves. John is saying the way, that the way that God makes us persevere, at least in part, is by urging and then enabling us to guard ourselves, 
to guard our hearts, guard our minds. We're not passive bystanders to the fight of faith. God has promised to keep us through that fight, not remove us from it altogether. More generally, I I think this is just a word that we all need to hear. When we think of Christian discipleship, do we have a place for vigilance, for guarding our souls? Do we worry much about what older generations would have referred to as worldliness? Now, I I think that term worldliness has a bit of an image problem these days. it sounds like the kind of thing that a fundamentalist killjoy would rant about, you know, kids these days and such. And it's true, guarding against worldliness really ought not lead us to just remove ourselves from the world like some kind of holy huddle, hermits, whatever. But still, we need to hear this. We're called to guard ourselves. Here and at the very end, verse 21, guard yourselves from idols. It sounds... Quaint now, I suspect, but when I was growing up, and I'm not that old, uh, the big issue amongst Christian parents in my community was whether it's okay for Christian students to listen to secular music, whatever that meant, secular music. Uh, it got complicated when U2 was around because U2's kind of, you know, is Bono a Christian? And, but, so th- but that was the issue. Um, it sounds adorable now, doesn't it? Um, I mean, the... The general answer was yes, but it was contested. And after high school, Bonnie and I went to Wheaton College, um, which is, I think, probably most famous for being the alma mater of Billy Graham, but maybe infamous for, for its pledge. People thought there was this restrictive pledge that students can't drink, smoke, dance, or gamble. I think there were a few others also. But that wasn't actually just a fundamentalist or Baptist thing. It was that. In 1928, the Christian Reformed Church, this very serious Dutch denomination, issued a report warning against worldly amusements, and they singled out the dangers of theater attendance, dancing, and card playing. You wonder what was on the theaters, Charlie Chaplin? Or, I mean, I, I don't really know. But it, it sounds funny today, doesn't it? And we might find these specific policies too general, too defensive, too reactive. I think we'd probably want to distinguish between the proper use of something and the abuse of what is otherwise a fine thing. So let's concede all that. I mean, I think I would say those things. But let's not be too quick to look down on our brothers and sisters from past generations. They didn't get everything right. Maybe those weren't the right strategies but they were making good faith attempts to encourage the church to guard herself. I mean, there really are serious dangers out there, aren't there? And in some of those areas, and it's really hard to imagine that these dangers have become less severe over the past few decades. John says that the believer, the one born of God, will guard themselves. Past generations may have been too cautious. Are we too careless? Earlier in the letter, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, 
the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Let's be clear. When he's talking about the world here, he's not talking about your neighbor that you like so well and all that. He is talking about the world in opposition to Christ and to Christians. I think we get that. So that's the exhortation. Maybe a bit grim, but we need to hear it. We need to guard ourselves. But I think that's going to be almost impossible to know unless we know what we're guarding ourselves for. We need to hear the negative, but it needs to be against the backdrop of this promise of eternal life. So let's hear in verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So we started with eternal life. Now John's returning to the same theme. Christian, you have eternal life. What do you think when you hear that? What do you feel when you hear that? Does it excite you? Does it fill you with hope? So we know it should. If it doesn't, there's some kind of malfunction, probably, right? But I wonder whether it does, or at least all the time. Do you respond to talk about eternal life sometimes with a polite smile and a suppressed yawn? Or I've known people who hear it and think, I'm not sure I like my own company very much now. Eternity with myself sounds unpleasant. I think most people hear eternal life and think that's shorthand for I'm going to go to heaven when I die. It's not entirely wrong. But that's a big problem because we are so confused about what that means. The great theologian Maria Shriver, not really, but Maria Shriver did write a children's book called What is Heaven? And I quote this not because it's crazy, but because I think it's actually a kind of common view. And she says, Heaven is somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. At night, you can sit next to the stars, which are the brightest of anywhere in the universe. Okay, I get it. It's a kid's book. But still, is that eternal life? Is that anything like eternal life? I mean, comfortable seating, polite conversation, and a nice view of the Big Dipper. It sounds like a cruise, I guess, but... I mean, I guess I would take that over the alternative, but it sounds awfully dull, and it doesn't sound like an upgrade over the real flesh-and-blood existence right now for all its problems. So what do we have when we have eternal life? What's this promise? Is it something that happens just after we die and we kind of go up on clouds and sing a lot of great songs? Is eternal life just about, is it just about a life of infinite duration? Like the promise that you get to live to be a billion and two when you just keep going? Is it a picture of eternal youth? Skiing in the morning, golfing in the afternoon, best restaurants and never gain weight? Um, or is it something else? Does eternal life have anything to do with our life right now? 
So I don't think this is just a speculative question. I think this is so important. It's important against the backdrop of that exhortation because unless we fix our eyes on our true, glorious hope, we're never going to have much success keeping our eyes from those false hopes that the evil one puts before us. If we want to keep ourselves from idols, we must fix our eyes on that hope set before us, eternal life in Christ. So what I want to briefly do is just scratch the surface, just survey a little bit about what Scripture says with just three points, though really that is just going to be scratching the surface. First, eternal life frees us from slavery to the fear of death. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus defeated the devil and his power of death to rescue those who were subjected to a lifelong slavery by that fear of death. I think we probably have some intuitive sense of what he's talking about that, there. That the fear of death can enslave us, direct us in ways that it really shouldn't. The hope of eternal life frees us from that fear. What difference does that make? I think a lot. For one, we really don't need to make a bucket list. <laughs> I mean, go ahead and make a list of things that you want to do. And fine, you only live once, YOLO, etc. But if your life extends into eternity, there's really not that kind of time crunch to force you into doing all kind of irresponsible, crazy sorts of things. We're not crunched for time. We also don't need to strive to create some great legacy and be great before other men and women. So at the very least, our name, our memory will live on in perpetuity as some pale substitute for eternal life. And with due respect to Dylan Thomas, we really don't need to rage, rage against the dying of the light. We can face our deaths with courage, with confidence, not with a tantrum. We can endure suffering with patience, knowing that suffering's not the final word. John the Baptist, beheaded by a petty despot. Paul probably died in prison. Jesus, executed to placate an unruly mob. If that's the end of the story, all the grimmest of lives. But we know that's not the end of the story for any of them. Jesus' death meant so much more. He died for us, and then he rose in victory so that we also will rise in victory. We who trust in Jesus by faith await our own resurrection. We await a reward far greater than anything the world has to offer. So that's first. Freedom from the slavery of fear to death. Second, I think we have to get rid of some of our imagery that's probably far more from Milton than from the Bible. Eternal life is an embodied flesh and blood life in the new heavens and new earth. It's not some ethereal, cloudy thing. In Scripture, eternal life refers to participation in the age to come when God makes everything right, when he wipes, wipes away every tear from our eyes, when he renews this creation 
And when he calls us up from the grave, yes, in our bodies, and gives us renewed new creation bodies. These bodies aren't lousy things that we're looking to escape from. This earth isn't some lousy thing that we're looking to have burn. God will renew it, make it glorious. Heaven and earth will be joined together. So what we do now has difference, makes a difference for then because it's the same world. Cleansed, renewed, but it's the same world. So I think that makes a big difference right there. But if we stop there, we really have missed the boat. We've missed the crucial point. Eternal life, finally, is the promise of God. It's the promise that we will see God and be transformed. Remember our passage says that Jesus is eternal life. Eternal life is not some kind of awkward accessory add-on to faith in Christ. Eternal life is the enjoyment of Jesus. In John 7, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. So our hope in knowing God is not really that we get some kind of eternal amusement park where we get to do all kinds of cool stuff. Jesus is not a surprise guest, an occasional participant in eternal life. Our hope in knowing God is God himself, the presence of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Because there is nothing better than God, nothing more desirable, more satisfying than God, there is nothing greater that God could possibly give you than himself. The promise of eternal life is the promise that we will see Jesus in all his glory and so be changed. As I said, I've read through 1 John a bunch of times, and I think by far my favorite verse is 1 John 3, 2 gives us this picture of the promise. Beloved, we are God's children now, today. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You have that hope. Eternal life means that when we finally, truly see God, we finally, truly become good as He is good. We become loving as He is love. We become joyful as He is joyful. When we see Jesus in His glory, we ourselves become glorious as we reflect his glory. As we see him, we have the promise that we will be changed and finally become all we were always meant to be. For our eternal joy and his eternal glory. That is God's loving promise to us.
his dearly loved children. Trust in Jesus. Put your hopes in this eternal life. And so keep yourselves from all counterfeit hopes. Keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Let's pray.